Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and today's guest is Issa Arsene, author of the debut novel, Shoot the Moon, which is what came out October 10th. So you can get it right now if you're listening to this podcast on the day it gets released or anytime after. Uh, Shoot the Moon is a wonderful, wonderful story all about a uh, woman working for NASA and her quest for both intellectual fulfillment and romantic love and the price paid for scientific progress. It is such a fascinating story. And Issa was such a wonderful person to talk to. We discussed a number of things around the very broad topic of music. I've, I've talked to a few people about music on this podcast, but what I really loved about this discussion is that Issa's quote unquote day job is as an audio engineer for interactive media. And this discussion dives really, really deeply into the fact that they seek out the music of life, if you will, the different, uh, you know, ways that everything technically is musical and everything has sound waves and how they interact with us on a daily basis. Uh, We get into a lot of different things in this discussion. We talk about some old timey music that we both loved when we were kids, uh, but just a really, really, again, like wide ranging conversation, but it was really interesting to hear her talk about her musical background, the, the music that she was brought up on in her house, and then how it has quite literally affected uh, her her daily life. And, and for this book, her debut novel, it was really interesting to hear her talk about the fact that she works with Soundways every single day, uh, but she kind of had to teach herself like quantum theory and uh, a lot of like rocket science and blend those things together in a way that she could make it make sense for the average reader while also being deeply, deeply interesting and also possible for her to discover. So I really, really, really loved this discussion. I really loved everything about this book. And I think you're going to as well. Uh, If you ever want to get a hold of me, you can, of course, always reach me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. You can find me on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok at passionsandprologues, where I'm constantly giving book reviews, book recommendations, and just talking about all sorts of bookish things. Speaking of book recommendations, I want to recommend a book that is one of the better books I have read in a really, really long time. In fact, I talked about this on my TikTok account. If you happen to follow me over there, The Collected Regrets of Clover by Mickey Brommer. This is a big, heartfelt, and life-affirming novel 
about a person who is a death doula, basically someone who helps care for others at the end of their life. And she spends so much time talking about the regrets and the joys and the advice of these other people that she's kind of forgetting to live her own life. Uh, She has had a series of things happen in her life that have caused her to become almost like a a recluse. And she doesn't really know how to handle them. She spends so much time handling other people's traumas that she's avoiding her own. Uh, She meets someone who kind of upends her life in a very, very fascinating way uh, that leads her to have a series of very, very important personal relationships. And just the story itself is probing and clever and hopeful. And as someone who thinks a lot about personal relationships, I really, really loved it. So that is The Collected Regrets of Clover by Mickey Brommer. Really, really recommend you check that out. And I definitely recommend you check out Shoot the Moon, the new book by Issa Arsene. And I hope you enjoy this discussion with Issa all about music and the ways that it is interwoven into our lives every single day on Passions and Prologues. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, Issa, what is something you are super passionate about that we're going to be discussing today? I am super, super passionate about music in all shapes and forms. Yes, this is a great, a beautiful sandbox for us to play in. So <laughs> I guess first, like obviously, every, like most people in some fashion enjoy music, but what... I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when you go on a, like a first date with someone and like, I'm really into music. It's like, well, oh, thank if you. they say no, it's like, no. Okay. We're done. Thank <laughs> you. Even friends, anybody, if, if you cannot appreciate the magic of sound waves doing things, then I have no desire to know you. As a yeah. <laughs> so what was it like, was it when you were younger, but I guess like what took music from being something you were interested in to being something that is like all encompassing your, in your life now? Uh, when I was a kid, obviously it was sort of like that one thing, you know, everybody, you play like the Raffi tapes and stuff. And it was like, oh, I want to get up and dance. So yeah, I know <laughs> all of sort of the kind of kids media, I think is, is so niche, but music, I think is a really special thing that kids media does really well. Um, so yeah, like Raffi tapes, um, books on tape that had music elements to them when I was in like kindergarten and early elementary school, like music class was it. Like that was my favorite thing. Um, my dad is really into music. Um, he would always like back when borders was a thing, he would after work, like go to the borders, put on those little, you know, the giant foam headphones that were still connected with like the coil one. And just listen to the album previews and see what sort of struck his fancy and then just bring the album home with him. And he'd keep them in his car. And um, I took piano lessons from six years old all the way through high school. And um, he would take me to my music lesson every week. So he'd be like, I got a new album. Like, let's pop it in the car. So we would listen. You know, I'd be listening to one week. It would be like 
Peruvian folk music. And then the next week it would be like super free form jazz. And then the week after that, it would be like, uh, oh my God, what's her name? Her band is called Union Station. Um, oh boy. This is so embarrassing. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm looking it up in real time. Um, Alison Krauss. Yes, Alison Krauss. And my mom's a huge Alison Krauss fan. So like whole spectrum of music. And then he would, he was a patent illustrator and he would bring his work home sometimes. And um, whenever he would work, he would blast the classical station. Mm -hmm. So I would hear, you know, I was exposed to opera and symphonic music and all sorts of, you know, the whole spectrum of of music. Um, And then I ended up studying composition in college. And so I learned how to write music. I learned how to orchestrate and kind of how to get into the guts of it all, why music sounds the way it does, how music sounds the way it does. Um, And the school that I went to, I I went to Temple up in Philly. And a lot of professors there um, were sort of the early pioneers of the computer music movement in the 60s and 70s. Um, And they ended up teaching at Temple, super, super robust music tech program there now. Um, But when I was there, I really fell in love with how to make computers make sound. And it was, it was a really cool mix of all this stuff that I loved. It was the puzzle solving and the problem solving that comes with computer science and also the artisticness of of music and learning how to manipulate input from speech or song um, and make that interact with the computer. So everything, finding a way to kind of make sound touch every little piece of everything. um, And that, shows up in a way that I didn't expect it to when I look back at Shoot the Moon is that like everything is kind of hinged around the fact that sound waves push a lot of, of what the universe does. Um, mm-hmm. And that was a fun puzzle that I had to solve is like I had to learn a little bit of quantum physics and sort of learn a little bit of rocket science, which is totally out of my depth. It was a lot of fun to, to research all of that. Um, and then come up with a reason of like, okay, I have to solve this puzzle box that I built for myself. Mm-hmm. Why? Like, why is all of this happening in the world, you know, plot wise? What is the connection here? Um, and to look at all of it and be able to trace the through thread of like, okay, no, it could be music. It could be not music, but it could be sound. It could mm-hmm. be something that I understand very well um, and kind of wedge that in among all of the rocket science and all of the quantum yeah. theory. Um but it was, it was a fun way to kind of bring it all full, full circle. But yeah, everything that I do for the rest of my life is, is going to be touched in some way by music because really that's, that's the way that I perceive the world most fully is, is hearing it and kind of having this musical element to everything is that everything does have a tune to it. Everything has a timbre. Everything's got a cadence. Um, it's all happening on an aural level first for me. Uh, so first things first, I feel like I, no one will know this because it's a podcast and it was a visual reaction. But when you said Raffi, I like, <laughs> I lit up like a Christmas tree. Cause I was like, first off, I won't ask, but I feel like we are of similar ages because we had a, I'm the youngest of four. And we had a copy of the princess bride that was recorded on TV. And the thing before it was a live Raffi album that got like a live Raffi performance that got partially, um, recorded over and so like we had the like i like to oat opals and bananas like we had the whole thing oh yeah all of a sudden it would just cut to colombo reading princess bride um, 
anyway, I, th- that's apropos nothing. I just couldn't let a Raffi reference go by without being like, oh my God, I know this. Raffi is the best, man. Like, it's, it doesn't pander. It's very silly. It's very whimsical. It's got a lot of heart. I have a lot of respect for Raffi. He knows what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. All right. Um, and then, so you were talking about how, you know, like you said, music really, it's like everything that you notice in life and interact with, you said you kind of approach from like a, and hearing things first, which I love. And like, I, I want to ask about like the composition of music and stuff, because I, something I've gotten really into since kind of like the pandemic was cocktail making because I missed going to having fancy cocktails and I've gotten very good at it. And I remember when I first started, I was like, this is so stupid. Why do people say they like, they like, why do people pick one recipe from like Jeffrey Morgenthaler? Like it's the famous way to do this thing from this specific bar. And I found out it's because like, the measurements of like, there is a chemistry that may like when you start realizing like, okay, one part, one part, two part, whatever. And now when I taste a cocktail, I can taste, I'm like, well, that, there's something off. And so this is a long winded way of asking, like when you're listening to music, how are you approaching it as a person who is listening? Cause to me, I just, I hear a song I like or a melody I like or lyrics that are catchy. Like what are when you're, listening to music how are you approaching it are you like thinking like how did this get created or are you able to kind of enjoy it at large first when I was in college and sort of in the thick of like study 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 my degree depends on this trying to sort of oh sorry my dog is barking um like the stakes were higher when I was in college so it was very much like oh my gosh everything I'm listening to I can never do this for pleasure again like I'm sure English majors have done the same thing with books um but that fades over time and I found that like still because it is such an inalienable part of me like I can never not be somebody who's into music um the love is always going to be there because it started first with love. It wasn't that I went into music for any reason besides the fact that I loved it so much. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like, imagine listening to music, sort of removing any sort of knowledge from it. If it's just like totally layman, I am approaching this from an audience perspective. I enjoy this. I'm listening to it. It's like two dimensions. You're, mm-hmm. you're listening to it from start to finish. It's linear you know, music is how we decorate the passage of time. It's great. Uh, But then when you study it and you sort of understand the mechanics of it and like why certain instruments are used, why certain combinations of instruments are used, uh, what's the history of this specific type of music? Was it used as a court dance? Was it it like old, old, old folk music that just kept getting dragged forward and forward and forward through all these eras of humanity? Um, You start hearing it sort of with this extra layer to it, it gets a 3d element where you're not just listening to it from front to back. You're also able to listen to the pieces of it. You can hear where it came from. You can hear sort of echoes of um, what the music used to be. If it's a tune that's been used over and over again, or if it's a familiar sort of rhythm that, that tends to get used. Like there's, there's rhythms that are often used in, um, music that comes from the British Isles. There's rhythms, tons of rhythms that are used in like Central and South America. And then you kind of stack it all together and you, it's really fun to listen to, to contemporary music because you have so much history behind you. And it, it kind of, it's the same reason I really like historical fiction is because you have so much 
material to work with. Yeah. And you have just this plate of stuff in front of you. Um, and as a reader or as a listener, um, you get this amazing, like you have all of this reference to mm -hmm. use as you're reading or as you're listening. Um, and it just, it's really cool to be able to be like, Oh, that's that one thing. Or like you pick up little Easter eggs as you go. Um, and it just makes the process feel really rich and it's, it's super cool to be able to be like, yeah, you know, that's a different orchestration. It's the same piece, but it's played on different instruments and here's why, or, you know, I like this one better because it sounds more mellow. It's, it's a fun language to build throughout the life. Hey, you don't have to say if there is, but being someone that can appreciate how things are built out, is there still music like styles that you just hate that you just like, Ugh, I can't, or do you have, I can't say that I, I, I can't say that I hate any music, but I think if it's like, what I hate is when it's so clear that somebody's just like totally phoning it in mm -hmm. to like cash out on it. Like it's commercialized schlock, like <laughs> It's, this may be offensive, but I call it post 9-11 country where yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like, the, it's like the Uber American, like oh, I have my truck and I have my gun. Like I live in Texas. It's everywhere, yeah. Yeah. but I can't get behind it. Cause it's not saying anything. Like you yeah. really want somebody to say something like listen to Johnny Cash, listen mm -hmm. to, uh, Patty, Patsy Klein, like those are the people who were saying something. So it's, it's, you have to, as long as the music is really saying something with itself and not just like making a quick buck, um, I'm going to enjoy the time I spend with it. Yeah. There's, um, I'll put a link in the show notes for other people. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but Bo Burnham, the comedian. Yeah. I love him. He's great. Yeah. It's old. It's very old now, but he did a country song parody. It's literally just called country song. And it is exactly what you're talking about. Like it, he and he's so good at mimicking different styles of singing that like I, there's this version of it where he does it live and it's it's just shredding those people who like, spot on too <laughs> yeah, for people who don't know what i'm talking about i'll put a link in the show notes but um so how does like having this like intimate very very deep knowledge of how music is constructed and things like how did or did that a affect how you write like did it affect the process with which you wrote shoot when you mentioned there being like very integral parts of the, the story itself involving sound but like coming at a story do you break it down similarly like you would listening to music or is it just two wholly different experiences um i wouldn't call them different i think they are different tracks on the same thought direction um because they're both creative and they're both me sort of making something from just an idea and if I crack open like notebooks uh like staff paper notebooks from college um it's similar to cracking open a prose notebook where like I'm making notes to myself I'm saying like I want to write about xyz um I always start with the ideas sort of broader um over time I've gotten much quicker with my iteration process of ideas for stories. Um, but I think the best thing that my knowledge in music has given me with writing is that my inner ear is, is really developed. Um, I can sort of pull tunes out of the air. I can, I can think to myself, how would this sound with dialogue? Um, I can kind of assign 
character voice. Like I, I know how all of my characters sound in my head, um, mm-hmm. which is really trippy when it comes to audiobook stuff. Cause sometimes it's like, Oh my God, that sounds exactly like them. Or like, yeah. Whoa, totally different. Um, it's really cool. And I think that the, the biggest boon is that like, it turns the creative process for me into like, it, it lowers the stakes because I'm not like this all powerful creator that has this huge responsibility to like birth this story. I'm halfway an audience member because I have the idea and I sort of just spin the top. And then as I'm going and as I hit flow, it very much becomes that, that I'm seeing the scene unfold in my head. I'm watching these characters interact with each other and I'm sort of just dictating what's happening. Mm. And I can hear them speaking to one another. I can visualize what's happening. I can sort of put myself in the space of like this little diorama of, of what's going on. Um, and it does become like a performance. It's sort of like I, whenever I sit down to write, I'm kind of shutting myself in my own private theater and, and getting a show. <laughs> and sometimes like if I, it's funny cause if like I, I go back and revise a scene, if it's just not working or it's not clicking or I kind of, something happens a few chapters later that changes the way I want to approach it. Um, I sort of just get to set all the pins back up and, and knock them down in a different way. And it, it, I think imagining the process as iterative instead of like, I have to get this right the first time. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have to just, this first whack at it has to be perfect. Um, that's really crippling for me. And, and like giving myself the expectation that the first thing that's going to come out of my brain is the most fully formed idea of it um, is really, you know, that gets shattered when you have to change things because inevitably you have to change things. Yeah. Um, and I think music, my, my education with music was really helpful there because so much of the process of, of writing new music is born between the composer and the players mm-hmm. um, because you bring your music to them. And sometimes it's like, you know, I don't play a bowed string instrument and I would sometimes bring my sheets to the violin players or the viola players. And they'd be like, I physically cannot play this. Like this is, this is not physically possible. You have to change it. Um, and it's the same when it, when it comes to just something not working on the page. Um, I think I just have a better or not better. I think I have a broader idea of what it means when something isn't working. Um, and I can just, uh, you know, it, it, it is easier for me to pivot and to adjust um, from there and, and make something better that, that will end up working better. Yeah, this may be totally off the mark, rough base, but I'm, I'm curious, like one of the things I've heard many, many authors tell me a lot of time is like, obviously they have a deadline when they're doing edits, but without that deadline, they're like, we could, I could tinker with the story forever and ever and ever. Like, I have to imagine knowing that you have to like tinker, but eventually get to an end point with a you know, piece of music or a piece of audio. Like, did, was that helpful knowing like just having gone through that process so much in your life, like did that help you when you got to the editing portion of, of your novel? I used to be really precious about all of my stuff. And I think like when I'm trying to think of like the timeline of it, I didn't take writing seriously until five, six years ago at, mm-hmm. at the earliest, I want to say. Um, and even then it was kind of a slow start, but, um, you know, I, I had a lot of exercising the rejection muscle, I guess, when it came to, um, 
creative output because with composition, like as early as high school, you know, I think I, my junior year of high school, so I was like 16 or 17 years old. Um, I would be putting pieces together and like submitting them to local choir calls or something. And mm-hmm. it, it like, you know, set this piece of poetry and perhaps we'll perform it for you and give you a hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of thing. I was, I was very into that because that was the way that I was attempting to build my resume for college and, and have like a professional output. Um, so, you know, something to show for it so I could get into college and actually get good at writing music. Yeah. Um, and then when I was in college, so much of the process of, of, you know, learning how the world works, um, I very quickly realized that acad- the academia side of it was not for me. Um, but it was still the process of like, I am consistent, like every year, if not twice a year, I'm going to be juried by my professors. So I, I will be presenting all of this stuff that I've created throughout the year in front of them. They're going to critique me. Mm-hmm. And I used to have really, really thin skin. I used to be very sensitive. You know, I'm still a very sensitive person, but in terms of like rejection sensitivity, um, it used to be so much harder for me to hear that somebody didn't love something that I was making. Um, And now I've just gotten so much more comfortable with understanding that a subjective art is actually a really beautiful thing that like people not loving everything is good. Like if, if it was possible for somebody to create something that everybody in the world would love, like that's sad. That means that there's no nuance. There's no room for somebody to bring their own experience to it. Cause you know, the, the fact that somebody, if somebody dislikes something that I'm bringing to the table, it doesn't mean that I've made a bad thing. It means that someone else's experience has informed them mm-hmm. to cherish and look for something totally different and it's up to the industry to give them something different and, yeah. and, you know, bring people to the table that can, that can speak to those experiences. Um, so yeah, I think it is, I'm really lucky that I was given a field, like a, it was a very, very, very like bouncy castle. It was a really safe place to fail. Like university is the place where you're supposed to kind of stumble all over your face and mm-hmm. figure things out as you go. Um, so yeah, it, I was, I was glad to, you know, in hindsight, it was it very, college was stressful and crazy as it is. It's your early twenties and you're, you're <laughs> very everywhere all over the place. Um, but I think it was, it was perfect, you know, looking at where I found myself now, it was a perfect place for me to kind of learn how to be a creative person. Yeah. I will say for uh, people who are listening and who might be a little bit younger, if you are, I'm in, I'm in marketing. I work for a tech company and I work for a tech startup. And if you want to have another place that will actually pay you money to kind of fail and learn quickly, it's a tech startup because we, it's like fail fast, whatever it yeah. is. I've worked for a couple of startups and it is, yeah. Fail fast is absolutely the right way to work. It, it, particularly in this day and age, everything moves so quickly. If you are not prepared to fail quickly, um, you can't iterate quickly. You can't develop quickly. It, failure means you're growing. Like that's, if, if I could tell myself one thing from, you know, looking back at 29 to somebody, you know, 18, 19 year old self, um, just like stop being afraid. Don't, don't be scared of things like life is going to happen to you regardless of what you do. Just like go wholeheartedly into it because like earnestness and authenticity is the only way that you're ever going to feel like you're making forward progress because otherwise you're just failing for nothing. Yeah. And I love that you also said stop being so precious. Like that's something, again, I'm in marketing. Anytime I write a piece of content, there's going to be nine people 
Like, what if you do it like this? And yeah, um, I want to get into shoot the moon. Yeah, kind of like talking around it a little bit, not but not directly about it. So first things first, can you kind of give my listeners an introduction to the novel? Because this episode will be coming out basically like the day before it gets or the day after it gets released. So they yeah, it's exciting. Um, Yeah, so shoot the moon is a story about a young woman named Annie Fisk. Um, she grows up in Santa Fe, New Mexico in the 1940s. Her father works on the Manhattan Project on the bomb. Um, she doesn't really know what's going on, but she loves her father dearly. Um, she's very mathematically minded, just like him. Um, she loses him pretty early on in her life when she's a teenager, and that informs a lot of the ambition that she develops for mathematics and astronomy and um, ends up going to college sort of starts forging her life for herself for the first time and feels this undeniable pull toward Houston for to NASA for the uh, moon launch. So she ends up working at NASA on the Apollo 11 launch in 1969. And from there, she discovers something that sort of blows the whole roof off of everything that she thought was possible. So what was it about like NASA and this specific type of story that made you want to tell it and like focus your energy on creating a story in this particular space? It was twofold, really. The primary driver was um, I really wanted to write something that took place in the Southwest. Um, My mom grew up in Albuquerque. Her whole side of the family is in New Mexico and she and my dad live there now. Um, And I spent a lot of time there when I was a kid because we'd go visit my grandparents every summer. And it's a beautiful place. It really does look like another planet. It's you have like these incredible mountains. It's so flat. The sky just goes on forever. Um, the quality of the light is totally different out there. It's, it's just, it's an amazing place. Um, I will probably end up there in a few years, um, but it's, it's an incredible setting. And I think that the, the, the books that are set out there are very specific books. And I wanted something that had a little bit of a broader stretch to it that still spoke very deeply to the fact that it, it was indivisible from the fact that it needed to be set there. Um, and also I've been living in Texas for the past five years, five. Yes. And I, I love it dearly. Um, you know, despite all of the crazy politics, it is a really, really lovely place to live. Um, you know, you find your community, it's a good spot. And to, to have something set there in the mid century in particular, um, the sixties, the fifties and sixties were a huge, just like booming era for for the whole southwest largely texas um particularly with the the moon launch and all of the space travel efforts that were made in in that time period in america um and then particular to nasa and and to the apollo 11 launch in in general um computer science started as women's work they saw it as like this secretarial busy work, you know, oh, poo poo, it's not special. We'll give it to the ladies. We'll give it to the, the ladies and particularly the women of color. Um, if you've read the wonderful story, Hidden Figures, um, that is all about the, the women of color who are particularly working on the launch. Um, and that aspect of it where it was like, you know, you think of computer science now, it's like you have all these dude bros who are doing it mm-hmm. and like making millions of dollars doing it. And it's a very, very male heavy industry that's sometimes actively hostile to women, which sucks. Um, but it started out as, as women's work. And I think it's, it's very special to 
look back at this period of history where, you know, it, it's, it is not something that was kind of born from the, you know, Oh, the male mind, da, 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 da. like it, 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 it's, it, we would not have gotten to the moon without women. And I think that there's something very special about digging into that niche of history of, you know, this was the early stages of really figuring out what computers were and what they could do for us. And the atomic age in general was such a hopeful, exciting time um, where people were really just running for the fences and there was only ever really talk of like, what's possible, what's coming. Um, you know, the, the bomb had been developed and had gone off, but there was still, you know, the, the, the cold war was, was present, but I, I think that there was still, you know, people weren't as, as jaded, I guess. And that might be a rose colored glasses way of looking at history. Um, but it did feel like there was this, massive idea of looking ahead and looking forward and, and yeah. sort of peering into the horizon. Yeah. For better or for worse, I feel like that time of history was much more optimistic. Right? Like I feel like now everything is just like, so like just the overall, obviously it'll depend who you, who you talk to, but like the overall attitude just seems to feel like deep sigh, like just like, yeah, we know so much about so many things now. And I think, like, I have to believe that we are still moving in a positive direction for humanity, because if I don't believe that, then I'm just going to get really sad. And, like, I can't get sad because I have books to write. <laughs> so, like, I, I mean, I shouldn't say I can't get sad. I get sad. I, but I cannot get bogged down with the weight of existential crisis um, more than, like, once a month. So okay. I, I have... <laughs> I have to give myself bounds of like, you can, you can sit and dwell on the fate of humanity for like X amount of time, like schedule it in and then move on. <laughs> have a little existential crisis as a treat. As a treat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a little morsel of it. Cause you don't want to, you, know, mm-hmm. you want to gorge yourself on it. That's exactly. So, um, so, you know, you mentioned living historical fiction is, is this the type of book you would find yourself drawn to normally as a, a reader as well? One that's kind of like a play on things that really did happen or do you tend to, was this just like a, a time period and a, a thing in history that you were super interested in? So that's why you chose to write. Everything that I write is me wish fulfillmenting things that I just want to read. Like yeah. I guarantee you give me like another two years to kind of cool off from being so steeped in this book mm-hmm. and I'm going to read it gleefully. I'll be like, Oh, it's my favorite. It's, oh, I'm so excited. Like I, I genuinely, am so stoked and so pleased with the books that I write because I, I, I am filling spaces in my bookshelf that I don't see filled by other things. And it's not to say that, you know, people haven't done the things that I've done before. Clearly. I mean, nothing is new under the sun, but I, I think that there, there's a certain bliss that comes with being told yes. Um, to like, yes, you, you know, yeah, go ahead, explore this. You know, we are, we will publish this book. Like, you know, yes, you can use that plot point. Yes. We are excited about these characters. Like it's, it is a very heady thing to be able to kind of just be set free into the pasture and, and write and have, have such a, you know, my, my imprint Putnam has been wonderful with 
kind of letting me drive the ship. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I, I absolutely am writing things that, that I want to read. I, I do the same thing with like short stories and stuff that I don't ever, ever intend to publish that I just have to get out onto the page. Mm. Um, I keep those and I read them. And it's really fun to kind of even like pick something up from three, four years ago and see the progress that I've made and, and still enjoy it. And, you know, I, I probably have like... I don't know. There's a finite amount of like themes and character types and dynamics and kinds of stories that I like to play with, which I think that's just what voice is, is like, what do you like to do and what do you do well? Um, but yeah, I, I definitely, this is something that, that I, I like speculative fiction. I like historical fiction. It was really fun to blend them. I don't think everything that I write will be speculative. Um, I think there will always be a little wink of, of weird in yeah. stuff that I do because that's the sort of media that I've been brought up with. That's the kind of media that I love. I'm, I'm very excited and interested in people sort of pushing boundaries and, and mm-hmm. like particularly with queer fiction, like you can't write queer fiction that isn't weird because like socially queer fiction, like queer queerness in general is just always seen as weird by at least somebody, unfortunately, or fortunately, because it's fun to be weird. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, I like twisting expectations um, and I really enjoy books that do the same thing. Yeah. I, I mean, it makes sense. I, when I, I remember like several years ago, I have a, a literary friend who she and I exchange book recommendations all the time. And I was like, I wish there were more books like X. And she looked at me, she's like, so write one. And I did. That's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> literally wrote a manuscript that I'm querying. And it's literally because I was like, I wish there were more books like insert plot line here. And she's like, so freaking write it. And I was like, yeah, okay, you're right. I apologize. Thank you. for. It's, <laughs> it's very empowering to feel like you're doing something for the right reasons too. Well, like, it, makes, it makes sense because like, obviously, like you said, you, if you're, you want to write a book that you would want to read because you're going to spend so much time with it. Like, if you if you are not jazzed as fuck about can i swear (laughs) if you're not jazzed as fuck about your manuscript you are going to have a bad time because you will look at this thing over and over and over and over again i finished i mean I, i i wrote shoot the moon very quickly i think i wrote it in like three months i wrote the whole the first whole whack at it i revised it i queried it i got representation we were, my agent and I did a full revision of it. We took it on sub, it got acquired. And then the revisions started quote unquote, like that's you, you, you do so many changes to it even. And like you, I think shoot the moon is unique. Cause I, I did, I think shoot the moon moved on a very short timeline. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at sort of in the grand scheme of like books, um, but I still had to spend so much time with it. And yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I literally, I, um, one of the agents that I queried, like that actually sent me a real response and not just the robot response. Like she was literally like, this all sounds great. This sounds fantastic. I really love like your voice for the first few pages, but she was basically like, it's too long for a debut. So I'm literally, I'm cutting 30,000 words from this book because it was a little meaty. But like, I was laughing because I was like, this is a revision. It's literally like, this is the revision before you revise. Like, it's like, it's literally, this is a revision to get someone's attention. So when we sell it, we can yeah. revise it again. Yeah. It- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You, it's, you get it in fighting shape and then you throw it to the wolves and then hopefully one of the wolves bites 
and then you take it back back home to shine it up um yeah it's i the, the one my second book it, i started writing it pretty soon it was like my distraction manuscript when i had shoot the moon in the trenches yeah so i've i've had that one for a long time and it's changed a lot over the course of what it is like the core of it is still the same but that one has gone through a lot more uh iteration just because just by nature of having it in hand for longer um mm-hmm. and knowing more of like who I am as a person now, as opposed to like two years ago, like it's, that's kind of the boon of, of taking it slow. I'm not a patient person. I don't Mm -hmm. write patiently. I write really quickly. Um, and that works for me. I like it because like, I'll be surprised by something that I wrote a month ago because I won't remember doing it. (laughs) Um, so it does keep it fresh in that way, but, but holding on to something and like, that's, that's kind of my next quest in writing at large is like, to slow down a little bit and to really um, live with my writing as, as an entity um, and, and give myself permission to sort of grow alongside it and let it grow with me. Um, Cause that's really the thing that I'm most excited about now going forward is like, I get to be this fully realized person now. And like, I think the biggest change with, having the book in the world is that like just simply more people are going to know that I exist. Mm -hmm. And that's really cool. That's really weird. That's really scary. That's really fun. Like it's all of these things at once. Um, But it's exciting because it does give me the opportunity to sort of, you know, I I get to have this extra lens on myself and on my words and and on the things that I intend to say with them Mm -hmm. um, that, is just really exciting because it's not an opportunity that I think anything else would have, would have offered me. Yeah. I love that. I, this is it. I, that's such a good like answer and I like such a good mindset to have. And I love it so much. I always, I always end every conversation with the same question. I have the author who comes on, give a recommendation of any kind. It can be a book. It could be a show. It could be a recipe. It could be, uh, you know, um, an, uh, okay. it could be an album that you love, anything you want to recommend. There's a Netflix show from like 2019. It's called Maniac. Okay. And it was featured, like they, they, they advertised it, they featured it, but like I have not heard anything about it since it came out. I don't feel like it really stuck very tightly onto the kind of the, the zeitgeist. Um, I think it sort of happened and then went away, but it's amazing. Like it's, it's Emma Stone and Jonah Hill, which is a hell of a combo. Um, Look at the cast. Oh my God. Sally Field. Stacked. Um, The plot is so fun. It is like this cassette punk near future romp. And it's like, talk about unapologetically weird. It's weird. And it's really good. Um, I don't know who the director is, which that's shame on me, but it is so fun. It like, you can, you can binge it in a day. It's fairly short. Um, like the characters are amazing. The, the costuming is incredible. The set design is immaculate. Like all of it is just stunning. And I don't think enough people know about it. So everybody should go watch Mania. (laughs) Love that. I love that. This was so fascinating and like i feel like that it's i feel like every so often i like meet an author where like i can like see how your brain is working i'm like we are similar people and i just enjoy getting to talk to people like that Yay! oh i'm so glad yeah so shoot uh shoot the moon is just fantastic people are absolutely going to love it he said thank you so much for joining me today 
Thank you so much for having me, Adam. I had a blast. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.